we're switching into Lent this time of year, and uh, we focus in, in Lent on the, on the last days of Jesus Christ. We focus on this journey that Christ makes toward the cross, and so I want us to spend the next few weeks talking and thinking about the cross. If you look behind me on the wall, there's a cross draped in a purple um, piece of cloth, and as you look at that cross, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? What mood, what ideas dominate? In the Gospels, the dominant idea of the cross is sadness, loneliness, loss, rejection, betrayal. Four times before Jesus dies, he predicts his death. And all four times, he says almost the same thing. He says the Son of Man will be handed over or he'll be betrayed. He will suffer. He will be rejected by the elders. And then he will be killed. Happy Lent. <laughs> that's, kind of a, that's kind of a downer. But I think that dominantly shapes what we think of Lent because when most Christians go into Lent, they get real serious and real disciplined, real focused. Uh, we start letting go of things as a form of penitence. Um, we we uh, like enter a dark tunnel and, and things feel kind of despairing. I mean, if you, if you want an example of that, if just go to a Good Friday service. And remember, most of Lent is headed towards Good Friday. And when you go to a Good Friday service, uh, there is um, the sound of the closing of the tomb. Boom! You hear the clap at the end, which is the closing of the stone against the tomb. And this room is full of people, and it's, it's stone silent. Nobody moves. Finally, someone has the nerve, so they stand up and they shuffle out, and the rest of us follow him. But we don't even talk out in the atrium. The way Lent begins is with Ash Wednesday, last Wednesday, we ashed people. If you've never been there or had that, they dip ashes and put it on your head in the form of a cross. And what they say to you is, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. Translated, you're going to die. <laughs> Happy Lent. Do you, do you see what I mean by this? That's the way it starts and it ends on Good Friday and it just sort of goes downhill from there. Uh, and and I'm, not, I'm not really minimizing this. I think that is the dominant message in the Gospels. But the problem with that is that when we focus on just that part of the cross and on the forgiveness of the cross, then what happens is we pack it up and put it away and for next year after Lent is over. The cross becomes kind of like a Christmas decoration, right? Nobody thinks about the incarnation in July now that all the decor has been put away. And so nobody really thinks about the cross in August, now that all of this stuff is no longer being talked about. So while it does make us more humble in the present moment, it doesn't really inform the way we think or act six months from now. It does teach us that bad things can happen to good people. So it helps us interpret our suffering in a positive way. But it doesn't tell us how good people can live. It just shows us the best of persons can die. So it seems like we have to find a meaning in the cross that outlasts Lent. Otherwise, this becomes like Christmas. When you go to Paul's epistles, Paul's letters, the second half of the New Testament, 
you get a strange but very different interpretation of the cross. And that's where I want to focus for the next few weeks. I want to look at the way that Paul interprets the cross. Here's why. I came in this room for several months and stared to the front, and as the light came up, could see the cross, and started asking myself what I just asked you. What is the dominant emotion that you feel when you look at the cross? And it was exactly what the disciples felt as Jesus narrowed himself towards Gethsemane. I feel loss. I feel alienation. I feel rejection, the betrayal. This is unfair. It's what people feel in third world countries when they show the Jesus film. They stand up and they start beating themselves. They start tearing things. They walk away angry. It's the dominant emotion, I think, that surfaces in the Gospels. But when I read Paul, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, for Christ crucified, or the preaching of the cross, is actually the wisdom of God and the power of God. So look behind me on the wall, look at the cross, and think to yourself, that is not defeat, that is brilliant. The person up there on the cross is not losing, he's winning. And so in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, I won't boast in anything except the cross. And he had plenty to boast in. He was the smartest guy, literally the smartest guy in the room. I know we have really smart people in our church. He was probably smarter. He was schooled at one of the most educated, elite people in the entire part of the world. And yet he says, I'm not going to boast in those things. I'm going to boast in the cross. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says that the person who gets on the cross doesn't end up dying, they end up living. In fact, they never die at all. He says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. He doesn't say, I die. He says, nevertheless I live. So whoever gets on that doesn't die, they actually come alive. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that whoever gets nailed up there by his enemies is actually making a spectacle of his enemies. See, we would look and say, it's over. He lost. They just made a spectacle of him. And Paul looks at it and says, no, that's not true. He is actually winning and he's making a spectacle of them. Am I missing something? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says the person who becomes obedient to death on the cross is actually exalted. They're not brought down, they're exalted. Now I know when I just lay all these verses in front of you, maybe you're sort of like you're drinking from a fire hose right now, like, holy cow, dude, slow it down. Okay, I'll talk slower. This is strange speech, so when you hear it, you're tempted to think to yourself, well, it's a metaphor. What he's doing is he's putting the best possible spin on the worst possible moment. It's the way Paul sees it. What if he means what he said? What if when you look at that, that's actually brilliant? And to avoid it would be ludicrous. What if the person who actually gets under one of these and carries these for the rest of their life and follows him, follows him, even though they appear to be, to everyone else around them, the loser, what if they're actually winning? If that's true, then you can't pack this up after Easter and put it away. 
because this thing is alive and real. It matters as much in August as it matters in March or February because now the cross is not a relic. It's not just an event that's stuck in the past. It's a reality. It's a culture. It's a way of living. It's a way of seeing the world. And so when I slipped into the sanctuary and looked to the front and saw the cross, I started... It changed partway through. I started thinking, this is power. This is what it means to win. This is what it means to be free and alive, is to take one of these things up. Which then led to the other thought, why then do I so often pursue something else? Some years ago in California, they had the Powerball, but they didn't call it Powerball. It was this great million, billion dollar rush where everyone packed up from the Midwest and moved whole families out to the West in order to discover gold. It was a gold rush. They had heard that somebody out there had hit the lotto where they'd actually discovered gold. And so a lot of people that were sort of middle class to lower middle class thought, hey, we could really strike it rich baby, packed up everything and headed out West. Most of them stayed in California. You can see pictures by the thousands. They are climbing the side of a hill, literally by the thousands in a single file so they can each spread out at the top and find their little piece of land and start sifting through it for gold. We spent a couple weeks in Alaska a few years ago, and there are whole cemeteries that are filled with bodies of people that left the Midwest with a moderate kind of a life, got out to the far west in order to find gold, found nothing but pyrite. They found this iron sulfide. It's known as fool's gold. And when you look at it in the sun, it just pops, it beams, glistens, and so everyone would grab it and they would think that it was gold until they took it back and weighed it and discovered gold's actually heavier than fool's gold. When they moved it into the shade, they discovered that gold will still shine in the shade. Fool's gold loses its glimmer and when they beat it with another stone or a metal, They'd find that fool's gold would crumble, it wouldn't last, but you could beat real gold to death and it wouldn't move it. So people were packing up everything, heading out to the west in search of gold, ended up finding fool's gold and died there penniless and poor. Now what drew them to the west was real. But what they actually settled for wasn't. Somebody once said that wisdom, wisdom is simply giving to things the importance they have in reality. So a wise person is able to hold gold and fool's gold at the same time and give the right importance to real gold and less importance to fool's gold. See, our trouble in our day is that almost no one has the sight on reality. 
reality is being defined by the culture, by what is popular or what is powerful or what gets one the most respect. Reality is being defined by the market around us. So that if we were to take real gold and take it into the market who is loving fool's gold, they'll laugh at the real thing and then cling to something that's fake. This is part of the problem. See, this isn't just people in the world, though that happens. That happens to people in the world. People will pursue something that they believe is is good, something that will give them what they... Not long ago, I met with a gal out here with tracks up her arm. She said, I can get, I can get drugs wherever I want, and my boyfriend sells them here in Marion. They're free. But while she's telling me this, her mascara is running from the tears. And the more she describes the life that she has and all the stuff she could buy and the stuff that she can get for free that other people have to pay for, I said, well, you must really have the life. She looked at her shoes and said, yeah. Then I said, why aren't you more happy? She said, because I feel like speed. Fool's gold. What she wanted was good. She didn't want to wreck her life. What she wanted was good, people. She wanted to be free. She wanted to be happy. Everyone should want this. The problem is, she chose the wrong way of getting it. And by the time she figured it out, it was too late. I heard uh, an interview this last week with uh, Don Henley, sings lead for the Eagles, Hotel California Desperado, that voice. Now, if you're under 30, you're like, who? Forget it. I'm talking to old people right now. (laughs) I don't know your bands, but they were really good. The Eagles were really good. And I love Don Henley's music. The dude is like 64 right now, which means he is getting younger. (laughs) And they had this interview with him. You know, the dude has been all over the world. And he's from Cass County, Texas. He went back to live at home right now. And at 64, with a wall full of gold, he he says, you know the one thing I still want? He says, I still want to just buy a piece of of land, cornfield, he said. I go, come to Indiana. He's a... He said, I just want to buy a cornfield, I just want to lay on my back, and I just want to look at the stars. He said, you know, you can see things when you just lay on your back and you calm down and you just look at the stars. He said, you can see things and feel things. And then he paused and said, I don't think I have ever reached that state of peace or happiness that I felt as a kid when I was laying on my back in my daddy's cornfield looking at the stars. Now, you know, let some other dude that hasn't accomplished very much say that, and I'm going to say that's a great sermon, preacher. But let a guy, listen, let a guy who has everything y'all want, 
say that. You want respect? You got a boatload. Money? Morning dream of. He's had more encounters, more promotions, higher profile, more followers on Facebook than anyone in the room. And to have someone like that say, you know the thing that has eluded me is the feeling you get when you just lay on your back in a cornfield. Fool's gold. It's fool's gold. I hear him saying, I spent the last 40 years clawing for gold. Thought I had it. But it's fool's gold. Most of life, or the problems in life, come from our failure to give to things the importance they have in reality. Let me translate that. Sometimes what screws us up is not the stuff we're doing. It's the stuff we're pursuing. It's the stuff we're chasing. And the stuff we're chasing isn't itself bad. Freedom is a good thing. Power is a good thing. Wealth is a good thing. Respect. We all want this. To be alive forever, we all want that. Those are good things. But the things we pursue in order to get those things consistently tie us into knots. We find ourselves in our own little way looking for that cornfield, a place of simplicity and ease and rest. And so many of us just can't find it. The reason, says Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is because we pursue the wisdom of men and not the wisdom of God. I can't say this enough. This is a point where words fail me, church. We consistently run to the cross in order to be forgiven of our sins and then promptly after we are turn back around and pursue another value system. We'll go to a meeting tomorrow and power up. You watch us. Christians, I mean. In Christian organizations, powering up, forgiven, but not transformed. They're not transformed because their value system has not changed. We will be forgiven by Christ and then turn right around and say, the reason I'm coming to school is in order to find a job that will make me happy and pay me more. 75% of freshmen checking in this year give us that answer when asked. Dude, that's another value system. So, if all the cross means is the forgiveness of sins, then we thank Him kindly, pack it up, and put it away like Christmas for next year when we need to remember it again. 
But if it's a value system, if what he's saying is, you want freedom? You want to get to a place where you can do anything you want? Then you have to do what you're told. You have to obey. See, we'll buck it. We'll say, no, no, that's not that. Yes, that is the way. That's the culture. Do you want to be powerful? Do you want to be significant? Then the way to do it is not to climb the ladder in whatever your domain is. The way to do it is to take off the very vestments you worked your tail off to get and then start washing somebody's feet. Become a servant to everyone because when you do that, you're indispensable. You want powerful people that are a dime a dozen. Everybody wants to be powerful. You should want power. You just can't have it the way you're going after it. You want to be wealthy? Then you need to divest yourself of wealth. You need to give stuff away. Because people who are generous are really rich. You want justice? Then you need to forgive your enemies. No, I can't do that. You say, I forgive my enemies. It feels to me like they're winning. No, if you don't forgive your enemies, they're winning. See, that's a culture thing. You don't hear that anywhere else. You want to live forever? You got to fall to the ground and die. Because the minute you fall to the ground and die, well, everybody knows dead people are more powerful than live people. We quote dead people. We elevate dead people. So if there was a way to, to die and be alive to affect it. And Jesus says you've got to fall to the ground and die. Nobody thinks this way. Nobody thinks this way. And this is the way of the cross. It's a fool's way. Only fools buy this stuff. Uh, I used to live in M Michigan, and, um, and uh, I lived right on the coast. Michigan's like a mitten. We uh, can always have a map wherever we come from Michigan, right here. I don't know what Indiana is. We were on the east coast, a block and a half away from Lake Huron. It's an amazing lake, and it's filled with long beaches, and uh, the beaches are lined with houses. As you can imagine, most of them are six-figure houses, uh, but every now and then, the people in my church were living on the beach, and they lived in kind of a mediocre, smaller house. So I'd go to their house when I went there, and I would uh, be on this huge piece of land in this tiny house, and I would think... <laughs> Did you guys spend all your money on the land? You couldn't afford the house. You might have, you know, maybe. And he said, no, no, the backstory is this. Years ago, late 1800s, early 1900s, nobody wanted beachfront property on the Great Lake. Can you fathom this? These people are now, some of them, paying almost $1,000 a month in taxes. They said, nobody wanted the property. Why not? They said, because you couldn't grow anything on it. 
So people were selling beachfront property for pennies in order to move inland and buy black dirt. When I heard it, I, with all due respect, laughed. I was like, are you serious? Because really, everybody inland now wishes they had beachfront. And the people who got the beachfront got it for pennies. Now who's the fool? They used to laugh, they said. They used to laugh at people who had beachfront property. Now they laugh at the people who want it and don't. What changed people was the culture. What changed was the culture. If you're living in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there is no way, no way on earth for you to move forward 100 years and know what that property is going to have to be like. So if you have property in the late 1800s, you're going to do exactly what everybody else does. You're going to look at the market around you, assess the value of the property, sell it for what you think it's worth, and go inland and get what you really want. But what if you could have somebody from the future? Say, what if somebody could come back from the future 120, 130 years and sit in your living room and say, don't sell it. Don't sell it, because 100 years from now, you say, I'll be dead. Your kids won't. They'll need it. If you hold on to it, it will multiply in value. When Jesus comes to us and starts saying the most powerful people in the world are in fact the most humble, He is speaking as someone from the future. When he says the richest people in the world are the ones who are the most generous, and the ones who really live forever are those who fall to the ground and die, and the ones who are the happiest are the ones who forgive their enemies, and the ones with the most respect are the ones who endured humiliation. When he says these things to you, he is not talking smoke, church. He is talking the value of things a hundred years from now. In the crassest way to put it, ten minutes after all of us are dead, we're going to know he's right. We will wake up in the next world... And say, oh my goodness, the poor in spirit really do run the kingdom of God. And the meek owned the earth the whole time. (laughs) The ones who brought peace really were the children of God. The pure in heart were the ones that always saw Him. The ones who were hungry were the whole time the ones who were the most full. And the ones who bore the scars of persecution are in fact the heroes in the kingdom of God. What if you knew now what you will know then? Now look to the front, church. That's the meaning of the cross. It is the way of fools. Only fools believe that.
that stuff. But in the end, the fools are right. The fools are right. 